Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Acts 24. We are working our way through the book of Acts. We have been working our way through the book of Acts for some time, and we are nearing the end of the book of Acts. Um, Acts 24, let me pray for us before we read it together. Our Father, we, uh, we pray that you would come and be with us this morning, that you would uh, open our hearts and minds by your Spirit, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, that we would see Jesus in all his glory, that we would uh, rest in him, rejoice in him, delight in him, as we have just prayed a moment ago. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would uh, exalt the Savior in, in our hearts and lives. We pray that you would do that now through your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ 
faith in Christ Jesus, and as he re reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Do you ever try to avoid Jesus? It seems like kind of a silly thing to say, but whether you are a Christian or not, I'm pretty sure that you do. Uh, if you are not a Christian, maybe you try to avoid Jesus altogether. If you are a Christian, though, we still try to get around him some days. We don't want to quite give it all up. Uh, we don't want to obey him in every area. Uh, some days, I know, I don't want to acknowledge any authority higher than the whims of my own heart. Sometimes Jesus just makes life complicated. And why would I want more complicated? So this morning we're going to talk about avoiding Jesus. And uh, if you want to follow along, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin. It's, it's pretty uh, simple. We're going to talk about how we avoid, why we avoid, and what we avoid. How we avoid, why we avoid, and what we avoid. First we'll look at how. How we avoid. Um, you know, Christianity has been uh, the object of ridicule for a long time. And uh, listen to some of these uh, accusations that were faced by the early church. So we're talking the first few centuries of Christianity. The early church was accused of atheism, incest, cannibalism, and infanticide. Atheism, because they refused to worship the Roman gods, so they must be atheists. Uh, incest, perhaps because they called one another brother and sister. Uh, cannibalism, maybe because they ate uh, the body and drank the blood of Jesus. Infanticide, I'm not really sure. <laughs> maybe these accusations were tied to some practices, as I just said. Maybe they were just an attempt to demonize one's opponents, as is often done. Either way, the point is made that Christianity has been an, an object of, of ridicule from the beginning. And even before people were accusing Christians of atheism and incest, they were accusing them of being enemies of the state. See, this is part of the accusation against Paul here and elsewhere in the book of Acts. Acts 24, Paul has been sitting in prison for five days now. He's been awaiting trial before Felix the governor. And finally, the high priest Ananias arrives together with some elders and their representative, uh, Tertullus. And after some flowery rhetoric about how great Felix has been for the nation, which, by the way, was complete bunk uh, coming from Jewish people because Felix was not good to them. Uh, so after the flattery is over, they present their case, which includes four charges in verses 5 and 6. Uh, one, they say that Paul is a plague, which is a bit general, but we get the point. Um, two, that he stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world, which has a bit more teeth, maybe, for the Roman ruler. Uh, three, they say Paul is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, uh, which is to say those who follow Jesus of Nazareth. And fourth, they say Paul tried unsuccessfully to profane the temple, uh, quote, 
uh, verse 6, but we seized him. Now, only one of those uh, accusations really means anything for Felix, that is the stirring up riots. And, well, there was some truth to it, wasn't there? I mean, everywhere Paul goes, trouble seems to follow. There's a similar accusation laid against Christians in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verses 6 through 7, uh, some said, These men who have turned the world upside down, and by that they just mean they're causing trouble everywhere, have come here also, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. I find it interesting that, that Paul is particularly accused of causing civil unrest, stirring up trouble, causing riots, acting against the decrees of Caesar, uh, for one, because if you know Paul, Paul had clearly commended civil obedience in his letters. He had, he had already written the book of Romans by this point. And uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, so Paul didn't commend uh, civil unrest, right? He, he commended obedience to the governing authorities. Second reason this accusation is interesting is, is because it goes back, right? It goes back even further than Paul, doesn't it? Uh, it goes back to Jesus, of course. Uh, Jesus is accused of claiming to be a king and therefore opposing Caesar. But it goes back even further. I, I was reading in Ezra this week, uh, and those who were rebuilding the temple in the book of Ezra, and later those who rebuild the wall in Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah, they are accused of doing so, so they could rebel against the reigning powers of their day, right? They're just building this wall so that they can then rebel against the king and defend themselves. It's a good accusation, I guess, if you're going to make one. It puts your opponent against the powers of this age, though to me it shows a bit of a lack of faith for the religious leaders. I mean, they made up this lie in order to manipulate the powers of this age in order to get rid of Paul. Um, it's very different from the humility of Gamaliel earlier in the book of Acts. Remember Gamaliel? He had said at one point to the religious leaders of Israel, he says, Take care what you are about to do with these men, the disciples. Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. See, Gamaliel was ready to leave things in God's hands. The high priest here... Now, at this point, not so much. He was ready to entrust matters into the hands of the state, into the hands of Felix, the governor. He seemed to think that maybe the state was more expedient than God was. See, this was their attempt at, at avoiding Jesus. Uh, I, I say that because they knew these accusations were false. They had ulterior motives, which we will get to, but these were convenient lies. Right? They could dismiss Paul out of hand, maybe even silence him, as a plague, a sectarian, a cause of civil unrest, somebody not to be even listened to. I want you to think about the accusations against the church or against Christians today. Um, how, do, how, do, how do we as modern people tend to dismiss the church? We say things like, oh, Christians, Christians are, are backwards people who believe a book full of superstition and myth, they haven't yet joined the scientific age, or they're, they're bigoted, or they lack tolerance. Maybe even they lack grace. And by saying these things, we sort of get ourselves off the hook from even listening to the Christian message. Clearly, Christianity is backwards and, and bigoted, therefore it's not worth my time even looking into it. 
Now, of course, I said earlier that Christians, too, tend to avoid Jesus. Uh, we, we, don't, we won't go that far, hopefully, or necessarily, um, though there are times when we buy into the criticisms of the world around us. Uh, but we have our, our more pious ways of avoiding Jesus uh, by saying things like, well, those verses don't really mean that. Or, uh, Jesus wants me to be happy after all. Or, he'll forgive me when all is said and done. Or maybe, I, yeah, I love Jesus, but the church is so full of hypocrites, so I just avoid the church altogether. What do we do, right, with all of these kinds of comments about the church, all of these kinds of criticisms, accusations? <clears throat> How do we defend the gospel, right, against the various accusations in our day? A part of me wants to say, look, we don't have to, right? I mean, every person in this room uh, doesn't have to become an apologi apologist for Christianity. We don't have to answer every silly accusation. And yet, at the same time, the church as a whole should, right, as we are able, defend the truth of the gospel. Uh, verse 10, Paul stands up and he says, I cheerfully make my defense. He's ready to defend even against silly accusations against him. Um, Peter says in the book of 1 Peter that we are always to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Always be ready, he says, to give a defense. And sometimes that will mean answering the, the, your, the people who are at your workplace or the, the people in your neighborhood or as you're having a beer together with someone and talking about spiritual things. You have an opportunity to defend the truth of the gospel. For some people, though, it might mean jumping in and really responding to sort of bigger public criticisms of Christianity in the church, answering some of those big questions that people ask. And yet two things stand out as, as I look at Paul's defense and think about the way Paul defends himself here. Uh, the, the first thing that we need to remember, if we're, if we're going to in any way uh, make a defense for the truth of Christianity, is, is we need to not avoid Jesus ourselves. Uh, if we don't want others to avoid Jesus, we have to take his claims seriously in our own lives. This is what Paul did, right, when he responded to Jesus' appearance on the Damascus Road. In fact, Paul had spent his life, uh, the last 20 years, answering that call, taking the lordship of Jesus seriously. But it really starts with simply seeking to serve Jesus in the here and now. We don't have to go on the road like Paul did or become missionaries to the ends of the earth, right? Wherever you are, whatever you do, take the claims of Jesus seriously. Of course, we, we won't do that perfectly, but actually dealing with our imperfection, dealing with our sin, honestly and daily, that's a big part of following Jesus, isn't it? Daily confession, daily repentance, daily striving after new obedience. That's actually part of what it looks like to pursue Jesus. Paul says in, in verse 16 uh, that he always seeks to live with a clear conscience. He's not saying he's sinless. That's not what he means there. In fact, Paul will call himself the chief of sinners elsewhere in the New Testament. So he's clearly not saying that he's sinless. What does he mean? He means that when he fails, he seeks to make things right. He's quick to confess, quick to repent. Right? Not, not, he's not making things right through penance, through paying God back for his wrongdoing, but through repentance, right? seeking uh, the forgiveness of those that we offend, striving after new obedience and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing that we need to do is not avoid Jesus ourselves, right? but pursue him through repentance and striving after new obedience. And the second thing that Paul does is he, he gives a reasoned defense. 
He gives a response. He carefully, patiently answers their accusations. He doesn't revile in return, right? He, he doesn't repay name-calling with name-calling. He doesn't demonize his accusers. He simply, clearly, patiently responds. Which often is a lot more than we can say for ourselves. When we are attacked, uh, we tend to respond in kind. But we're called to respond with patience and grace as Paul does here, and of course as Jesus did, as Peter tells us elsewhere, he did not, Jesus did not revile when he was reviled. I think though that the number one thing we need to learn as a, as a church, sort of taking these together uh, in the 21st century, right, if we want to answer objections, the objections of those who are seeking to avoid Jesus, we need to learn to be weak. That may sound funny or odd, but but I think the number one way that we avoid Jesus, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, the number one way that I avoid Jesus is through trying to be strong, right? Through self-reliance, uh, through refusal to admit that I'm wrong or I'm weak or I need help. And the more we learn to rely wholeheartedly on Jesus in weakness and in repentance, the more the power of Jesus will be unavoidable in our lives. And the only way to do this that, that I know of is, is to know that I am forgiven in the cross, right? That my identity is not found in my perfect obedience. It's, it's uh, found in the perfect obedience in the righteous life and the sin-bearing death of my Savior. See, then and only then do I not feel the need to defend myself. And so I'm free to defend Jesus and the gospel, to give a reason, uh, a reasoned defense for the hope that is in me. Then and only then will I be free to admit that I am often wrong and always weak, but my Savior is ready to forgive. See, how do we avoid Jesus? We make up accusations. We give ourselves excuses for not having to deal with the cross. You know, Christians are backwards or bigoted or whose lives are no better than mine. And how do we answer that? Well, first, we must know that our identity is found in the cross, not the accusations of the world. And then we need to see, okay, there is a place for a reasoned defense. That is one without name-calling defensiveness, as we see Paul give here. But the number one answer, I think, is simply to pursue Jesus ourselves, to demonstrate our neediness in order to demonstrate his power, to be willing to be weak so that his strength can be seen, so that Jesus is unavoidable in our lives, not because the church is hip or cool or relevant, not because we have it all together, but because we are broken and weak and sinful, and so Jesus is seen as the source of healing and strength and grace. So how do we avoid him? We, we tend to make excuses. How do we make Jesus unavoidable? By being honest about our own weakness and sin so his grace becomes evident in our lives. A second why. Why do we avoid? The, the, the religious leaders had some ultimately lackluster acts accusations against Paul, right? Uh, Paul's a plague. Okay, well, that's just name-calling. Uh, he stirs up riots. Well, not exactly. Uh, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, that's true, but it's not a crime. He even tried to profane the temple. Well, that's just an outright lie, uh, given that he was undergoing purification at the time that they found him. See, the truth of the matter is, they're putting Paul on trial not because he had committed any crime, but because they were jealous. Now, their jealousy began with Jesus, right? Matthew 27, verse 18, we're told that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the religious leaders delivered up Jesus. 
And then this has been a constant theme throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, we're told that the high priest and all who were with him among the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. And so they arrested the apostles. Acts chapter 13, when the Jews saw the crowds, the crowds that were uh, listening to Paul's message, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Acts chapter 17, some of the Jewish people were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they, found, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. See, how the religious leaders of Paul's day avoided the claims of Jesus was through false accusations and excuses. But why? Why did they avoid the claims of Jesus? Because they were jealous. Now, it seems kind of trivial, I know, uh, but jealousy is a powerful emotion. James calls jealousy earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And he says in James chapter 3, verse 17, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And let's generalize this for a minute, right? I mean, as long as you are looking out at the world and saying, I want that, right? As long as you have your heart focused on what other people have, you will not be willing to hear the claims of Jesus, right? If you're thinking more than anything else, I want this thing, I want that reputation, I want these riches, I want that relationship, right? The claims of Jesus have not sunk in and will not sink in because your heart is focused elsewhere. And this is true not just of the religious leaders of Paul Day, but of the civil leader as well. I mean, notice Felix for a moment. He's a man uh, who went from being a slave to being the Roman governor. Felix had wooed another man's wife, mentioned here by name, Drusilla. He was a harsh ruler in Judea who cruelly killed and robbed its inhabitants. He was not a nice guy. He seemed to be a somewhat fair-minded judge, except when he wasn't. He listened to Paul often, verse 26. He was bothered, but he was bothered by Paul's message, verse 25. He ultimately kept Paul in custody, not because he thought Paul was guilty, but because he hoped that Paul would try to buy him off, right? He was waiting for a bribe. And when his governorship was done, Rather than letting Paul go, he left him in jail to curry favor from the Jewish people, whom, by the way, he had recently massacred, and so scoring some brownie points uh, was definitely in his interest. You see, what was Felix after? Well, the same things that, that get so many of us, money and power, right? In this case, political power. Felix, too, like, like the high priest, was consumed with the stuff of this age. As long as he was consumed with the glories of this age and the powers of this age, we will do our best to avoid Jesus. If I'm enamored with these things, I don't want to hear that there's something more glorious or more powerful. You know how it is, right, with a, a young man or a young woman freshly smitten, right? They don't want to hear of their new love's faults, right? In fact, they'll deny their faults and defend their love beyond all reason. And that's what we often do with this age. We love this age. We delight in its pleasures. We fear its powers. We obey its rules. We extol its virtues. We boast when our mouths are full. We are jealous when others have more than we do. We mourn our emptiness or lack or loss. We congratulate others through gritted teeth because we wish we were the ones who were receiving what they have. We spend our lives trying to get and to gain and to amass and to indulge and to collect and to save uh, sometimes we manipulate or plan or coerce and plot 
Sometimes we just, we just live life for the little things, we say, but all the while we're avoiding Jesus because he might mess this up. He might overturn our priorities. He might expect something from me. He might make me uncomfortable with where I'm living. And so how do we avoid? We make excuses, right? As Christians, uh, we, we make Jesus unavoidable by proclaiming his power in our weakness, his grace in our sin. But why do we avoid? Because we have our eyes set on this age. Uh, we, we look with a jealous eye on the world around and are not willing to look up and see the glory of Jesus. So, so this brings us to the third question, what, what do we avoid? Uh, you might think, well, Luke, you've just been saying for the past 20 minutes we avoid Jesus, and that's true. Uh, but we can be more specific than that because Paul gets more specific than that. You know, what would you say is at the heart of Christianity? Uh, maybe you would say, well, God, right? Without God, there's no Christianity, and that's true. Uh, maybe you would say Scripture, right? Without Scripture, we, we couldn't know God, right? Not rightly. Certainly, we couldn't know the gospel. Or, or maybe you would say, well, the cross, right? Because there at the cross, Jesus paid for sin. He paid the debt that we owe. And, of course, all of those are good answers. And uh, it's probably a futile effort to say, well, this one thing is the most important. Uh, but I think if you were to ask Paul to give you one word that was at the heart of Christianity, he could do it. For Paul, there was one thing that took him from being a persecutor to a preacher, from being an enemy of the cross to an evangelist. Do you know what that was? Right? That one, one word, right? What would you say? What's the one word that Paul would hold on to, that this one thing is at the heart of Christianity? Hands down, without a question, that, that one word is resurrection. See, here's the message that Paul preached in Acts chapter 13, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Paul preached that in the resurrection we see Jesus is the Lord and Christ, the Holy One, the Son of David, to whom the promises were made. And that therefore, because Jesus is Lord, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name. In Athens, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, he preaches them so much that the people think Paul is preaching two different gods, Jesus and the resurrection. He said that God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? That's where Paul goes to every time Jesus rose. It was Paul's Damascus Road experience, right, that changed everything for him. Why? Because there, Paul met the risen Jesus. Uh, really not just met, he was confronted by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was commissioned to be a witness to what he had seen and heard, that is, the risen Lord Jesus. This is what Paul says is at the heart of his uh, being on trial. Uh, Acts 23, verse 6, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. This was not simply a clever ploy to divide the council, though it did that at the time. This is really the heart of Paul's message. Jesus rose from the dead. Apart from that, there is no gospel. In fact, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. He says it again in our passage this morning in Acts 24 verse 21. He says, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. See, the issue for Paul is not who has the most followers. It's not uh, money or influence or politics. 
the issue of Christianity is the resurrection. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If not, Christianity is empty. Don't be a Christian and think that Christ has not been raised. It doesn't make sense. Don't be a think, uh, Christian and think that Christ has not been raised bodily from the dead and is now seated bodily in heaven. That's the message of Christianity. Now, the resurrection, to be honest, is, is an inconvenient fact. It, it, for those for whom this world works, at least, the resurrection is an inconvenient fact. Because it does at least three things. On the one hand, it, it, it relativizes the power and glory of this age. Right? The resurrection tells us that the glories and the powers of this age are not ultimate. The, re the religious and civil powers of this age, of this world, did their best to defeat Jesus. And though for a moment it appeared as if they had won, Jesus rose, defeating death, proving that even the power to kill can be defeated by his resurrection life. And so the strongest, the harshest power of this age has been defeated in the cross. Two, and the, the result of that is that the resurrection releases others from the pool of the powers of this age, right? I mean, what's the best thing that you can possibly promise me in this life? It's not as good as the resurrection. What's the worst thing that you can do to me? Kill me? And third, the resurrection, right, announces that we will be held accountable for what we do in this life. See, at the resurrection, the resurrection to come. See, and for these reasons, right, the fact that the, it, the resurrection relativizes the glories and powers of this age, that the fact that it means that these things no longer have pull on me if I have hope in the resurrection, uh, the fact that I will be accountable at the resurrection of the just and the unjust on the last day, uh, for these reasons, among others, the resurrection is quite inconvenient for those for whom this world works. See, if this world works, I, I don't want to be told that, that the currency in which I deal is not ultimate. I don't want to be told that my power is not ultimate. I don't want to be told uh, that, that money isn't everything. I, and I want you to play along, right? I want, I, if I can't manipulate you with promises and threats, uh, you become a kind of wild card, a, a threat to me, a nuisance at best. I don't want to be told that I will be held accountable to some unelected official in the age to come, the resurrected Jesus. No, the resurrection brings too many things into play that I can't control. Life is simpler without the resurrection, right? You have simple uh, scientific laws which are always followed, survival of the fittest, right? Majority rules, so on and so forth. Threats and bribes work, intimidation and buttering up, right? Because people are not living for something to come, Right, but for right now, for the moment, for the mundane. And the mundane we can control, at least a little bit. Or at least keep up an illusion of control. The resurrection, though, it's, it's, it's messy. It's quite inconvenient for those for whom the world works. And yet when Paul, right, when he preaches the resurrection, he really means two specific things, and I've kind of implied them along, but just to make them explicit. First, he means the resurrection of Jesus, right? Jesus' resurrection for Paul uh, it means that, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. He rose from the dead. Jesus died and faced judgment, and then he rose. God the Father found him righteous, and so he rewarded Jesus with resurrection life. He exalted Jesus as Lord to the Father's right hand, that is, to the place of rule over the earth. And as long as Paul thought that Jesus was just some backwoods pretender, he could safely persecute the church. But once Paul met the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, everything changed. Jesus is Lord. He must be obeyed. 
The second thing Paul means when he talks about the resurrection, again, he not only means the resurrection of Jesus, but also our future resurrection. In verse 15, Paul says his hope in God is that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul believes that all people will rise from the dead one day. All people, the just and the unjust. But that doesn't mean a happy ending for all. Right? Because for Paul, this means that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he rose uh, first, having been appointed the judge of the world. And when, when we rise, we will appear before him. This is why Felix is so uncomfortable with Paul's teaching. Notice in verse 25, Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and sent Paul away. Right, there's a judgment coming. Is that scary? Is that alarming to you, the way it was alarming to Felix? Are you ready to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? And notice the summary of Paul's uh, message in verse 24. The summary of his message was not ultimately about the coming judgment. Paul spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. See, whatever else Paul said, whatever warnings he gave, whatever call to repentance, in the end, Paul spoke about grace. There is grace to be found in Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, Paul would have said, as he did on other occasions. Through simple faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. We have boldness to stand in the day of judgment. And so let me ask, right, what do you do with the resurrection? What do you do with Jesus' resurrection? Uh, do you know that he is Lord of all? If you have been dismissing the resurrection as a silly myth, right, don't dismiss it out of hand. Study it. Right? Read the New Testament. Read the Gospels. Ask good questions. If Jesus rose from the dead, that is the most important event in history, past, present, or future. Don't dismiss it lightly. Second, what do you do with our resurrection? Right? The fact that we will face judgment one day. Are you ready? Uh, again, the only way to stand is through faith in Jesus. We, we are guilty, right? Like Felix, we have blood on our hands. Maybe not literal blood, but we have put the things of this world before the God of this world. We have crowned ourselves little kings and queens rather than bowing down to the king of heaven. We have committed what some call cosmic treason. How can we rebellious, treasonous citizens of earth stand before the judge of heaven on the last day? Only if we trust in him now to remove our sins by his blood. Only because of the, uh, the forgiveness of sins is found in his name. And so with Paul, I say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Will you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for these precious promises in your word that we can trust in you and find our sins forgiven. We pray that that would be a comfort to us, that we would be encouraged with that thought, that our sins have been washed away by the blood of, your, by the blood of Jesus. Our Father, we pray that you would uh, remind us of that now and continually, uh, again and again throughout our week. As we are confronted with our sins, we pray that we would be reminded of the Savior and that we would find comfort and grace in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.